Imagining Rob Hobson in, in like Superman jammies. It's just what I have in my head. Probably shouldn't have been the first person that came to my mind. But uh, anyway, if, uh, if you have your Bibles, which again, you should because you're in your house, um, uh, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 7. Um, but before we get to that, I just wanted to say a few words about offering. I'd like to uh, pray for our offering in a moment, but I just wanted to remind us that uh, we want to uh, continue to uh, give to the church because the work of the church will continue. Um, you know, the, the work of the church um, will not be canceled. You know, it's, a, it's such an important thing for us to remember that church is not canceled during this time. We just are gathering in a different venue for a limited time, for, for, for a temporary amount of time. Um, but the work of the church continues, and we just uh, remind you that, um, you know, that, that this runs um, on the generosity of its members. So we just want to uh, thank you for that. Um, and I also wanted to draw your attention to, if you need any information about how to give, uh, you can go online to uh, ournewhope.org and get the information. Uh, click on the giving tab. It'll give you information about uh, the address. You could just send a, a check in. That would be fine. Uh, there's also EFT information forms that you can download there to just have that uh, taken directly out of your, your bank account or whatever. Um, and then there's also now, thanks to uh, the work of, of Rick Faint and Mark Ludwig, there is now the, uh, we're offering the Give Plus mobile app that you can download um, on, your, on your phone and you can give via bank card or credit card or whatever you'd like. So just wanted to let you know those are your options. And with that, let me pray for our offering. Father, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for uh, this gathering of people. Um, and I just thank you for these families that are gathered together for worship. Um, I just pray for them. I pray for uh, their peace that, um, <laughs> that after three weeks uh, in the house to, uh, uh, together, I imagine there's some, there's some high tempers and there's some arguments and uh, there's some tension there. But Father, I just pray for your peace, which surpasses all human understanding, to just um, to enter into these homes uh, and uh, show your love um, through one another. I just pray that uh, these gifts of time, talent, and treasure that we've been seeing in all these new different ways um, over the past few weeks would be used to continue to build for your kingdom on earth as, as it is in heaven. And it's in the most holy name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> first and foremost, I got to say that um, I planned this series a long time ago. I remember last summer sitting in a chair in my, in my front yard, reading my Bible and, and, and coming to the book of Exodus, and, and I'm thinking like, oh, this would be perfect for Lent 2020. And principles of strongholds and redemption and deliverance and the attributes of God, they, they all can't seem to flow from the book of Exodus, and they're especially important during Lent. Plus, the concept that, that so much of what happens in Exodus is, is actually a foretaste of the ultimate picture of redemption and new life that we see in the cross and the empty tomb. Well, that makes Lent an ideal time to study Exodus. All of that is still true. Plus, we get a global pandemic. It's been said that good preachers speak with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, and 
I've got to say, I'm not convinced that that's the best way of thinking about it, but, but I will say that to ignore current events of the world that we live in would be naive, irresponsible, and reckless. So, that being said, when I say that the topic of the sermon today is plagues, please know that I'm not choosing to talk about plagues today because of our current COVID-19 situation. That being said, the Bible has a way of speaking to us at exactly the time we need it. So no time like the present to do business with this story. The sermon this morning is going to cover everything from Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, all the way through chapter 12, verse 36. That's over five chapters of text, and of course we won't read it all. The good news is that it outlines actually pretty easily. Here's the story in an overview. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. God calls one man, Moses, to be his instrument of deliverance. He tells Moses that he's going to use him to bring about freedom for his people. God, or Moses comes before Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and tells him that God has commanded that he let the Israelites go. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you'll notice that some of the conversations Moses has with Pharaoh, uh, that in some of those conversations, there's, there's some times when it seems like the goal is for the people to be completely liberated, and other times it appears Moses kind of starts small, per God's instruction, and requests that the people just be allowed a temporary trip into the wilderness in order to worship God. Ultimately, God's intention is that his people be completely liberated from slavery. And that's kind of where this whole ship of Exodus is headed. The problem is, Pharaoh says no. In the story, Pharaoh represents and embodies evil. Egypt represents a major superpower of the ancient world, and Pharaoh's power is going to be contested in this story with God's power. Now, on one hand, God is never out of control in this story. Uh, things don't happen that God doesn't expect. That may be a clue at understanding that kind of troublesome detail that it says, uh, where it says that God himself hardened Pharaoh's heart. God doesn't create sin, but nothing is beyond his control. He can redeem anything. So the text before us today, beginning at chapter 7, verse 14, outlines 10 plagues that God sends on Pharaoh in order to compel him to let the people of Israel go. We're dealing with over five chapters of text, but here it is in a nutshell. Biblically speaking, a plague is a calamity. It's a widespread problem of special-sized magnitude, um, but it's also a sign or maybe a wonder that God uses to bring about His purposes. Through Moses and his brother Aaron, God delivers plagues in this order. First, the Nile is turned to blood, there's an infestation of frogs, then gnats, then flies, then there's a plague on livestock, an outbreak of boils, hail that is so thick that it kills anything it touches, and then an infestation of locusts, and then a ninth plague of darkness, kind of hearkening back to the beginning of Genesis when the world was darkness. We'll talk about the tenth plague separately in a bit. 
um, throughout each of the narratives of these plagues um, is a similar structure, a similar story structure uh, with some variation. In most cases, Moses goes before Pharaoh, lets him know that God desires that he let his people go, and the plague is delivered. Pharaoh shows then some degree uh, of desire for the plague to be lifted, but as soon as it is, he changes his mind and refuses to let the people go. At first, Pharaoh's magicians perform similar signs, but in time, even they are so overpowered um, by the plagues that their magic crumbles at what God does through Moses. It's also notable that in most cases, although not all, it's specifically mentioned that Israel is spared any discomfort from the plagues, even though they are still in Egypt as well. In many cases, we get moments where Pharaoh appears to relent, uh, relent and then as soon as the plague lifts, um, Pharaoh's heart just hardens right back up, uh, and he goes back to refusing to let the people go. During the locust plague, Pharaoh tries to see if he could allow just the men to go. And during the darkness plague, he says that the people can go as, well, as long as you don't take your livestock, you can go. You figure he wanted to steal Israel's livestock. Well, uh, they were all away because <laughs> the Egyptian livestock was all dead. But, but no matter what happens during these first nine plagues, Pharaoh ultimately goes back to refusing to let the people now, before we go any further, we must remember that the primary purpose of this story is to provide identity for the people of Israel. For Israel, the reason why these plagues are significant to their history is because they show the superiority of Yahweh over the lesser powers of the Egyptian age and the wider ancient world. Some have categorized the plagues into plagues of Nile, plagues of land, and plagues of the sky. Each of those natural entities would have been worshipped to some degree by Egypt. And the plagues, that, the plagues show God's sovereignty over those idols. The larger narrative of Scripture shows us that pride, 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 was a big part of what God was dealing with here. If you fast forward to the book of Ezekiel, which was written around the time of the, uh, that the book of Exodus would have been compiled in its current form. Uh, turn over to a, a, a Ezekiel chapter 29. It says, In the tenth year, in the tenth month, in the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, or as, as uh, Jason Poling liked to uh, translate, Benadam uh, ben dirtbag, uh, set your face, son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophecy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. You watch a documentary on ancient Egypt. It's no joke. Historians and archaeologists are still trying to figure out how they did some of the things that they did with the limited resources they had at their disposal. How did bricks that large get moved to that location? How did that foreign material wind up in that structure? 
uh, artwork, communication, pottery, pyramids, the Sphinx, all of it is no doubt impressive. But the point for the one reading this story is to consider, is all of this um, is this all a result of my own ingenuity, um, and, and does it lead to my pride? Or is it something deeper than that? Is this all a, a result of my own ingenuity, my own, uh, my own wit, my own uh, wisdom, or is it something deeper than that? In, in other words, is credit given to the one who crafted humanity's mind and muscle? Or are we blinded by our own success? In the modern age, we've, we've built great empires, right? We've built national empires, we've built financial empires, business empires, digital empires, entertainment empires, as well as, as, well as empires of a more personal nature, family empires, home ownership, or even our own health and our own comfort. I think we have to ask ourselves if that success has only read, led to more reasons to ignore the one true God from whom all blessings flow. The Nile is mine, says Pharaoh. I made it for myself. And God says, did you now? Allow me to show you how quickly your empire can crumble. So while I don't think that it's a stretch to imagine that these plagues are lessons for Pharaoh, I think that we have to remember that Egypt isn't the primary audience here. Israel is. While what I'm trying to avoid is a circumstance of Israel, and by association us, viewing this story as like innocent bystanders, shaking our heads at those evil people over there. The truth is that God is going to have plenty to say to his own people really soon. And he has plenty to say to us today. Let the reader understand that the line that separates good from evil does not separate good guys from bad guys. The line that separates good from evil, it runs right down the middle of every one of us. We don't just need rescue. We need redemption. Turn with me to John chapter 9. At this point in John's gospel, uh, Jesus had just uh, had an awkward and nasty altercation with Jewish authorities. It ended with Jesus reminding them that before Abraham, before all this business from even before the Exodus, before Abraham um, was I am, before Abraham was called, God was at work. Jesus says, in, in verse uh, eight or chapter eight, verse fifty-eight, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, and then tells, and then John tells the story of a man born blind, picking up at the beginning of chapter John, chapter nine. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he, he spit on the ground 
and made mud with saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. The disciples here are assuming that, I don't know, some manner of like karma exists or something. That the man was either blind because of something he did or because he was blind because of his, uh, something that his parents did. Um, and Jesus is quite clear to call that out and say that is not true. This man is not blind because his parents sinned. He's not blind because he sinned. Of course, he had sinned in his life because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And ultimately, that is what he needs freedom from. But to try to line up sins with painful experience does nobody any good. If I stub my toe, it would be a fool's errand to try to figure out which sin was being punished in that particular moment. On the other hand, it would be irresponsible for us to ignore that actions have consequences, either for the negative or for the positive. I stubbed my toe because I was clumsy or because I was distracted. Car accidents uh, happen because of drunk driving. If you fail to do the work for a class, it will result in a poor or failing grade. Further on, kindness and generosity produce gratitude and increased interpersonal connection. Focused uh, driving produces a much lower risk of accidents, and dedication to studies produce decent grades. Granted, that's not always true, right? Kindness is often made fun of. Drunk drivers continue to get away with irresponsible behavior, and sometimes the class is just an easy A. The point that Jesus is making here is that there are things that are going on here that are deeper than we realize. The man wasn't blind because of sin. But that doesn't mean that he couldn't, uh, that A, he, he couldn't grow as a result of the experience, and that B, that God's character couldn't be revealed through it. This is all very mysterious, but it all is a source also of hope. As N.T. Wright says, the chaos and misery of this present world is, it seems, the raw material out of which the loving, wise, and just God is making his new creation. Let me say that again. The chaos and misery of this present world is, it seems, the raw material out of which the loving, wise, and just God is making his new creation. The question is not which sin caused this man to be blind. It's what's God up to? The story, in the story, this man is is brought before the Pharisees and and they start to grill him and and the guy just says, listen, listen guys, you know... if you want to learn more about this guy, you're going to have to go talk to him. What I can tell you is that I was once blind, and now I see. And so the hope in that kind of passage, in that passage, is, is that lives can be changed. Freedom is possible, and hope is offered to all of us. 
Now back to the plagues. The plagues described in the book of Exodus happen as a consequence of Pharaoh's refusal to let Israel go. The way those consequences take shape are a mystery to me, and frankly, it's not my place to question them. It is my place, however, to learn from them. What seems clear from this story is the truth that God desires freedom for His people, and He will stop at nothing, nothing, nothing to accomplish that goal. After nine plagues that range from inconvenience to suffering, God then tells Moses to threaten Pharaoh with a tenth and final plague, beginning in Exodus chapter 11. Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he'll let you go. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Picking up in in verse 4. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there's never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Those words should not be easy to hear. Clearly, God is raising the stakes to an unfathomable degree. This is not the time for us to wave our finger at Pharaoh in Egypt and say, well, you just got what you deserved, didn't you? This story should make us tremble. It should make us sick to our stomach. This story is intended to show us just how seriously God desires freedom for His people. And it's not a coincidence that this final plague deals with matters of life and death and family and deep, painful suffering at the loss of sons. The final plague sets up the severity of God's actions moving forward, not only in this story, but also in the larger narrative of Scripture that goes on through the book of Revelation and even towards us today. The spoiler here is that God is about to show us a picture of what the severity of the cross looks like. The redemption, the redemptive action in which God is going to call all people, all people, all things to be His people and redeem them through the giving of His Son and the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ on the cross. Ultimately, That is what needs to be at the the forefront of our minds as we read this story of of Exodus. It's more than just a threat, right? Pharaoh says no again. And even after seeing how God is quite capable of acting out plagues that had come previously, his heart is still hardened and he refuses to let the people go. So God tells Moses 
to instruct the people to prepare for what will soon be known as Passover. Each household is to slaughter a lamb, to spread its blood on the doorposts of a house of their house. The households are to roast the lamb um, and uh, uh, eat it, but they have to eat it all. Anything they don't eat has to be burned the next morning, and while they eat, they're to keep their belts on. They're to keep their sandals on their feet. They're, they're to keep their staves in their hands. They should eat quickly because God is on the move. When the tenth plague takes effect and the Lord strikes down the firstborn of Egypt, he will pass over the homes that have the lamb's blood on the doorway, and the people of Israel will be spared this plague. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from my people, both of you. Get out of here. You and the people of Israel, go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds as you have said, and be gone. And then he adds, Bless me also. Wasting no time, a mixed multitude of people Exodus from Egypt at Pharaoh's final request. All told, the story tells us that the people of Israel were in the land for 430 years, and now they were released. It would be premature to say that the people were free, though. The story continues, and it will reach its climax with Jesus on the cross. Still, the importance of this story to the shape and the identity of the people of Israel, and therefore the shape and mission of the church, cannot be emphasized enough. The text of Exodus makes it quite clear that Israel is to remember this for generations to come. They are to remember who saved them. They are to remember that God, with a mighty hand, stretched out his hand and saved them from this destruction. To remember from a biblical point of view, um, biblically to remember, um, it implies a present and active um, uh, bringing to mind. When the Bible talks about remembering something, it's not just saying like, um, uh, yeah, that's right, that's what happened to those people all the way back there. In fact, if you've ever been uh, to a Jewish Seder, I've been to uh, at least one myself, um, and you'll notice that that the the, the kind of liturgy that they use throughout that dinner is they don't say God rescued them from slavery. They say God rescued us. 
They actually speak in the present, in that moment. That's um, what we should do when we think about remembering what God did for us in Christ. Um, Next week, you're going to hear from uh, my friend Juliana Plews, who is just an incredible woman of God. I am so looking forward to her words and what she has for, um, for each one of us. Uh, she's going to kind of pull back a little bit from the narrative of, of Exodus and, and really lean into this uh, thought of remembering and actually kind of talk to us about what it means to give a testimony of what God did for you when he rescued and redeemed you from the slavery of sin. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that, um, and uh, uh, I also want to mention that um, uh, because of, uh, I was th- grateful that, that Trent um, uh, was able to pre-record the worship. I think that worked great. Love Trent. Love you, Trent. That was just awesome. Um, but because of we don't, uh, we didn't want to go kind of back and forth from that, I do want to uh, uh, close our time just from the pulpit. Uh, but before I do that, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. Um, for what you have done in the lives of the men and women of New Hope Community Church, individually and also corporately. Father, I just ask that you would bring to mind this coming week our own stories, the, the, the stories of us moving from death to life, from, um, from sin to redemption, and how you turned our stumbles into dance. Father, I just ask that, that this week would be a time where we uh, bring to mind, call to mind, and remember how you actively, presently are working in us um, and kind of uh, intentionally mixing the, the, the time uh, periods there. But um, Father, I just ask that, that you would be with my friends this morning, um, that you would uh, remind them of your holy mercies, which know no end. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.